to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. And not just another episode, but a special um, episode that you're about to explain. That's right. Well, it's it's been a year. I mean, hard to believe. But uh, every week for the last year, America's Constitution has offered you the opportunity to hear about events of the day, events of past days, events of future days, the Constitution, and all things surrounding it. And uh, it's quite remarkable. We've been able to do it every single week um, this year, not one break. Congratulations, Akil. Well, it's all you're doing, Andy. And actually, uh, thank you to our uh, faithful and uh, growing audience. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful how we've seen actually about 80% growth in the last month. And, uh, and that preceded another period of growth. So hopefully you're, you're, you'll stick with us for, for year two. And uh, you know, I think one of the things we can demonstrate today is we are listening to our audience, um, and and uh, one of the ways we can do that is by talking about some uh, some of your questions today, um, that you've been feeding us over over the last uh, number of months, particularly. Um, so you know, it's a year, so it makes sense to take stock and and look back at uh, some of the highlights of the year. You know, at the beginning, in the very first episode, we promised you that we would have great guests and. You know, when I was going back over the uh, the episodes, I think you know some of the highlights really came from some of our guests, um, and in particular your interaction with them. Uh, so uh, you know, I think that a lot of the highlights that we play for you today um, will will involve those guests, which doesn't mean you shouldn't tune in on the weeks when it's when it's just the two of us. Um, but in those weeks, I think maybe what happens is you get more uh, in depth analysis as opposed to um, you know, a different perspective. Hopefully we give you both. Um, so, you know, when we look back at our very first episode, uh, the first thing that occurs to me is that we had different music. Um, yes, cue, cue the tape, as they say. Yeah, so uh, before, I, before I play it, you know, uh, we've, we've sort of been, been improvising as we went along, and one of the things that we, that we learned, for example, was that the audience was very interested in discussing uh, some of the things that were in the news you know, that week and that sort of thing, so we've, we've moved more towards that. Um, but another way that we improvised was technically, so you know, we threw together some, some quick music, and then later we had our theme uh, composed by uh, David Fenster. Um, and uh, so here's, uh, here's our original... Um, theme and the original clip from the opening of America's Constitution. And I'll play for you just some some, uh, sort of scattered clips from that episode. One thing to keep in mind about it is that this was January 7th. So we all know what happened on January 6th. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, here, here we are all set to to record this podcast and then the world falls apart in front of us. Uh, I'm not quite sure we appreciated the degree to which it had fallen apart. Uh, what was your reaction, you know, uh, Akil, when, you know, we had, we'd watched that together and then we went to, to tape these things. Um, you know, how did you think about the, the idea of recording a, a, you know, a podcast in the wake of these events? Um, well, we didn't know the full extent, actually, of um, White House, in, indeed, presidential um, involvement. Um, and as we record um, this episode um, in late December, uh, we still don't know 
the full extent. Um, and we're going to come back to that actually in, a, in another clip um, that will run later in, in this episode when uh, a clip from our discussion about presidential impeachment um, with Professor Bobbitt, but um, Phil, Professor Philip Bobbitt, one of my uh, abiding views is that it's it's permissible to um, have an impeachment trial and a conviction um, even after a president's out of office. Indeed, to have a House impeachment even after a president is out of office, because the evidence of misconduct misconduct may happen very late in a president's term. In this case, you know, January sixth and the events leading uh, up to it, uh, um, and and actually um, following it. So the high crime misdemeanor may occur, you know, very late in the term. And the evidence of it may not even be available while the president is still in office. And our conversation on January 7th, Andy, it, um, when we use the Wayback Machine, the time capsule is actually proof and evidence of, of that proposition, because I don't think you and I fully understood the, the, the significance of January 6th on January seventh, because so much um, evidence uh, hadn't materialized, I, I, I can't let you let you go. I know you're going to play the clip in just a second. Um, um, thank you, David, for for you know your amazing music. It it, it really it, it pumps me up every time I I listen to the finished podcast and 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 hear my very own theme song. It it, it reminds me of two um, uh, or three uh, uh, boyhood and young adulthood experiences. So lost in space had I think at least four different theme songs o- over the years. And, and that, that was interesting. I, I was a huge um, Mary Tyler Moore fan. And, and actually the, the theme song for that actually went through um, uh, various um, iterations as well for uh, folks who are a little bit younger. Of course, they, they may think about friends or something like that as, you know, uh, an, 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 an amazing theme song at, at the beginning. You know, in terms of the January 7th recording, um, I think that uh, you're right that we didn't have the full sense of, of how January 6th had, you know, hadn't fully sunk in yet. But but I also think there's a different perspective, which is that, you know, we'd been living through the day-by-day anxiety of the, you know, the post-elect, the lame duck period. And of course, then we discussed that in another episode. Um, and so it was on our mind that we had all these things that could go wrong, and that we had, you know, dodged them. Thus, the you know the first s- series of bullets dodged. Right. And the January sixth events were in the in our minds very much of a piece with those events. In other words, the notion that you know the president's going to get up there before, uh, even before the election during the debate and say, "Well, I don't know if I'll accept the results or not." You know, it's, right. it's going right. to there's so much fraud and who know. And then you know after the the night of the election, he get got up at two o'clock in the morning and 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 makes a statement saying, you know that that uh, the you know all, there's tremendous problems in Pennsylvania and here and there when without evidence, right. um, and so forth. So and day every single day we were worried about what might happen, what was happening, and so forth. And January 6th was part of that series of events. It wasn't an isolated event, as it's come to be looked at, I think. And it's a, a, a day of special legal significance. Election Day has special legal significance, actually in part because the Constitution provides that Congress can determine um, a day of choosing the electors. And the day the Electoral College meets um, in, today in, in, um, in, in 50 different states um, and in D.C. is another specially juridically significant day. And again, the Constitution provides that Congress can, can specify the date. And it's supposed to be one date where um, all the electors meet on the same day. And then 
the third um, juridically significant date is the day when the Congress actually, the new Congress under the um, uh, 20th century amendments, the, um, the so-called lame duck amendment. 20th amendment. Yes, thank you very much. I, I wanted to double check to make sure it was the 20th Amendment, but of course it is. Uh, the 19th is women's suffrage and the 21st is uh, the repeal of prohibition. So under the 20th Amendment, there's uh, the new Congress meets to certify the electoral, co- electoral college results. That's another very juridically significant day. And for all the things that went wrong on January 6th and the morning of January 7th, the one thing in the end you know, went right enough was that the Congress did indeed properly certify that Joe Biden was indeed the lawful victor of the Electoral College. And, and so d- despite the, the, the mayhem, the chaos, the, the death um, and destruction that we all saw that day, and we didn't see maybe the full extent of it because we only saw what the cameras initially um, uh, allowed us to see, um, and now we're getting, again, lots more um, information and testimony and, um, and, uh, and the like, um, but for all the, the, the mayhem and, and, and madness, the one thing that did go right is that the folks in Congress stayed at their post, um, didn't um, flee the Capitol and did their job. Um, not, some of them continued to make a little bit of mischief. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden was certified as the winner of the Electoral College. So to repeat, the three really juridically significant days are um, the day of choosing the electors. Election Day, the day in which the um, uh, electors actually meet, typically in mid-December, and the day of certifying the Electoral College vote, which is in early January. Now, given that that January 6th was a significant day, uh, as you put it, in the electoral process, in the, you know, in the, in the constitutional structure of the electoral process, um, is there some relevance there uh, in terms of the current question about the congressional subpoenas of the president and so forth. In other words, if you're talking about whether Congress is, you know, has a duty to investigate or at least the, the power to investigate um, what went on in the, on that day, the fact that Congress had some actual business to do that day, some constitutional business to do, and you could make the argument that the rioters and so forth were attempting to obstruct that business – does that give added credence to Congress's ability to, you know, subpoena and, and so forth in order to investigate that? There are so many independent grounds for the absolute propriety of um, a full and complete congressional investigation. I don't know if I'll get up to 18, but just off the top of my head, let me just identify, you know, several of the obvious reasons that, that this is appropriate for Congress. And But let me begin by saying the Constitution itself does not specify congressional oversight power. In chapter nine of my book, America's uh, Unwritten Constitution, I actually highlight this fact. This is a 2012 book published in in, in 2012. And and here's how chapter nine begin, which is all about um, uh, America's uh, uh, institutional uh, constitution, how how various parts of the, the government actually sort of operate. And here's how I I, I begin um, the the main chapter. In a system famous for its detailed enumeration of congressional powers, Congress, in fact, enjoys some remarkable powers that are not clearly enumerated. These powers can easily be read into the Constitution, but only if its text is viewed through the prism of practice. Today, 
Each House of Congress can investigate virtually any subject of legitimate public interest. At times, each House can also act as policeman, prosecutor, judge, jury, and jailer all in one. For example, each House on its own motion can incarcerate an uncooperative witness, whether a public official or a private citizen, to prompt his compliance or punish disobedience that occurred earlier in the session. Each house can also adjudicate and punish other contempts against itself, against itself, such as attempted bribery of its members. Each house has its own enforcement official, known as a sergeant at arms, and is free to use its own building as a jail, so long as it is in session. Even if the federal judiciary disagrees with a particular House or Senate contempt judgment, federal judges have only limited power to free a House detainee or otherwise reverse the House. The question for ordinary courts is not whether they concur with the substance of a particular House ruling, but whether the House in a given case acted within proper, albeit unwritten, jurisdictional bounds. By punishing only matters that may appropriately be viewed as contempts against core House functions, by following adequate adjudicatory procedures, by imposing no punishment except detention, by releasing all detainees when the House session ends, and by honoring applicable rights, such as Americans' general freedom to criticize Congress. Now, why did I go through all of that in detail? Because, you see, I committed myself to a certain understanding of Congress's investigation power long before January 6th, you see. And, And I committed myself whether the... Um, the House or Senate in question was controlled by the Republicans or the Democrats, whether they were investigating alleged contempts and misdeeds by uh, liberals or conservatives. So I begin by saying, here's an interesting fact. It's not in the text of the Constitution explicitly. So then why do I say it's easy and obvious? Point one, from the beginning, Congress did this from the Washington administration on. Congress actually resolved itself, each house, into an investigatory and oversight body. And the people who drafted the Constitution were the leaders of the Congress, and they thought this was um, easy and obvious. Now, they were building on parliamentary precedents, but Parliament actually has powers that are very different from and and broader than American-style legislatures, because in Britain, Parliament is sovereign, And in um, America, government um, powers are are limited. States had, um, legislatures had also done this, but again, there's not as much of a strict tradition of enumerated state legislative power. So it actually is very important for me that from the beginning, from the Washington administration on, Congress has done this. Why? Because Congress needs to pass laws. And like when, how, how to structure, for example, the counting of electoral votes. There's a famous statute, the Electoral Count Act, actually, that was adopted in part because of some of the, the problems that uh, arose in 1876-77, the Hayes-Tilden election. So, so Congress needs to pass statutes, including a statute about the electoral process, and it needs to inform itself about what has worked and what hasn't and, and why. Even if this were beyond the scope of Congress's enumerated powers to pass all laws necessary and proper for implementing things that are vested in, in Congress and in other branches of government, like the power to, to regulate the electoral college process, even if there weren't an obvious propriety of congressional statutes, as there is here, 
Congress also always has the power to propose amendments to the Constitution, giving itself more power if it thinks that certain powers are needed, but they're not already in the document. But again, um, it needs to be able to inform itself in order to properly discharge its amendment functions. Here, it's easy easier still because there are at least two other arguments that that um, uh, one of which you identified congress itself was being messed with this was a contempt of congress in very obvious ways the early um uh, congressional actions had to do with people who were trying to bribe congress members this had to do with people who were trying to assault congress members to to prevent congress from even meeting so of course congress has the power to to uh, defend itself uh, appropriately but to also to conduct a proper investigation and that's what they did as i said in the washington administration and then finally, and we've already touched on this, um, uh, anticipating our, our Philip Bobbitt clip, Congress, of course, um, is vested with um, great powers of impeachment. The, the House to actually, in effect, indict or impeach an official, I would say an official or an ex-official, um, for um, high crimes and misdemeanors. And the Senate to try the proceeding and proceed to a judgment and, and punishment, a conviction. And the punishment has to be limited. The Senate can't um, chop people's heads off, but the punishment is limited to removal from office and um, d- disqualification from future office holding. So con- congressional investigatory power is at its apex when it, in fact, is explicitly given, in effect, prosecutorial and judicial powers, which um, it is, of course, in the impeachment process. So just to recap, the Constitution doesn't say anything explicit about congressional um, oversight and contempt power. And I'm saying they can even cut the judges out of the loop. They can put people in the, the dungeon of the Capitol on their own, say so. Um, and and, basic, and and Supreme Court cases have reaffirmed this unanimously in the 20th century. And, and the first um, Supreme Court um, case law that, that affirmed this congressional power comes from the Marshall Court. So it doesn't say so explicitly in the Constitution that you won't find this oversight power. But... It began with George Washington, um, or the Washington administration has never been repudiated by any of the branches uh, uh, of government, House, Senate, presidency. There are OLC opinions, Office of Legal Counsel opinions. This is the the president's lawyers that have um, reaffirmed this in the 20th century. Judges, justices in the Marshall era and in the 20th century have repeated um, all of this. It's in Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution, a landmark um, uh, uh, legal treatise in 1833, um, the most important piece of constitutional scholarship of the, the 19th century. And the reasons for it um, so it, it's deeply rooted in our system, and the reasons for it is that Congress needs to legislate and therefore needs to um, apprise itself of, of information um, so it can legislate sensibly. Congress gets to propose constitutional amendments, and again, it, it needs to acquire information. Um, and Congress does have explicit powers to initiate and, and, and try uh, impeachments, and these um, subpoenas and, and, the, and the like are absolutely and obviously pursuant to all of that. Well, I want to play the clip, as we promised, but I, but, I, <laughs> but I'm, I have to ask you, based on what you said, the Congress is, as we said, investigating these events, and it's issued subpoenas uh, through its uh, investigatory committee, um, and the president uh, and others, not just the president, but you know, others have defied these subpoenas. The, the former president. The former president, thank you, um, has have, has defied have defied these subpoenas, and. Congress, instead of doing what you've said, putting the, just saying, okay, sergeant-at-arms, go get this guy and put him in the dungeon, 
has instead referred this to the Justice Department. Is that the appropriate um, or or thing to do? And it, or um, is it just you know step one, and then if that doesn't work, they do this? Or you know, what do you think of this tactic? It, it is permissible. It, it, there are statutes that provide for all of this. I'm saying it could cut the middleman out. It doesn't have to go through the Justice Department and Article Three courts. Article Three courts would still have a role in habeas corpus. Um, to challenge any detention. But as I explained in the opening paragraphs of that chapter, the standard of review would be very different in a habeas corpus proceeding. Simply, did the House have jurisdiction um, to do what it did, which is very different than do we, the judges, want to use our own power in effect to enforce a subpoena? That's, just, that's a different question than, now, it is true the House hasn't done this more uh, direct um, action, using its charging of arms and, and throwing people in, in, in dungeons in um, the modern era, but its power to do so, to repeat, goes all the way back to the first Congress and has never been questioned by uh, uh, the Supreme Court or the Office of Legal Counsel, to my knowledge, and on the contrary, has been emphatically affirmed in landmark decisions, uh, both in the Marshall Court in the 19th century and in landmark uh, 20th century Supreme Court opinions and in more recent Office of Legal Counsel um, rulings. Just to clarify that, those are those decisions that you're talking about, um, are those decisions on the investigatory power, yes. or are they? Yes. So, what have, you said that in the modern era, that Congress has not sent the sergeant at arms out to imprison anyone. Did they do it in the founding era? Has it ever yes. been done, and was it yes. ever tested? Yes. Yes. What happened? <laughs> they went to to the dungeon. <laughs> and did did and was there a court proceeding? Was there a habeas? Uh, Court, I don't think it was it was challenged. It was I, I don't believe, but but later the key cases um, are discussed at pages um, three thirty nine and following pages in my book uh, America's Unwritten Constitution. I'll just tell you the story. In seventeen ninety five, several members of the House reported that a non member Robert Randall had tried to bribe them. The House promptly ordered Sergeant Arms to arrest Randall gave the accused a three-day trial in the House, convicted him of attempted corruption by a vote of 78 to 17, and incarcerated him for the next week. The Senate claimed comparable power as early as 1800. In the 1821 case of Anderson versus Dunn, the Marshall Court, John Marshall's court, unanimously upheld the power of each House to punish non-members for contempt such as bribery of its members. And I would think assaulting its, mem- its members and breaking into the, the, the House would follow, as lawyers say, a fortiori. That's, that's even easier. The Houses of Congress have never renounced their authority to exercise the self-help remedy, even though most contempts of Congress are nowadays processed by regular Article Three court proceedings. Anderson versus Dunn remains good law for modern judges and justices. The relevant 20th century opinions... Um, unanimously reaffirming, unanimously reaffirming Anderson, have explicitly emphasized early practice, such as the 1795 Randall matter, and the President's Office of Legal Counsel also supports this inherent contempt power of each house. And Andy, again, I didn't write this after January 6th. I wrote this 
fully a decade ago. It was published in 2012. We're going to be uploading this at the end of, 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 of 2021, so fully 10 years later. And that's why I have more confidence in my views on some of this, because I could be wrong, but here's what I'm pretty sure. I'm not partisan because I came up these rules when if you had told me Donald Trump is going to be elected president, I would have giggled, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't have taken it seriously, you know, as, as a possibility. I'd say, you mean like the, the apprentice guy? So, so uh, and, and, oh, you know, history made a fool of me on, on that. Um, I, um, but um, the rules that I laid down, I laid down, as it were, without knowing whose ox was going to be gored. Yes. It would be like saying that Dr. Oz could be elected governor of Pennsylvania. Okay, well, here's so um, I'm going to play this clip for you. And again, it's uh, several clips from our first episode to sort of give you an idea of the kinds of things that we were talking about there along these lines. And I think, again, just the the notion with this episode today is not necessarily that, that we'll uh, uh, just rehash all this stuff. As you can see, we just discussed something that we haven't discussed before. It's to uh, you know continue our our approach of giving you in, in constitutional insights based on whatever is happening. So uh, here's the clip. Welcome to the first episode of America's Constitution, uh, a new podcast with Professor Akil Reed Amar from Yale University who was an acknowledged expert on all aspects of the Constitution. And uh, we're very excited to get this started because we're going to be talking about constitutional issues that are really on the minds of people all over our country. Um, It seems like every day the editorial op-ed pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times are filled with uh, commentary and expertise, uh, real or imagined, on the, uh, on the Constitution. And uh, one thing that you uh, will know that you're getting when you listen to this podcast is actual expertise, because we'll have Professor Amar at all times, as well as a series of uh, guests, quite remarkable guests. Today is January 7th, 2021, when we're recording this, and it's the day after uh, you know, a wild day in Washington, D.C. yesterday. I worried aloud about all sorts of possible catastrophes that could occur um, in our presidential election system. The presidency is so important. Let me just begin with that because it vests so much power in one person. What would happen if shortly before the election there were some mishap? Um, could be an assassination. It, it could be today, COVID or, or lightning striking, God, God forbid. Now, happily, nothing did happen, so that's why I I'm, I'm feel a little more able to talk about it now because on that, I'm able to exhale just a bit. But I was not sleeping well right before the election because that's a window of vulnerability, and I've thought so ever since my testimony on February 2nd, 1994. Uh, let me uh, get at it one final way. Um, Our audience remembers 9-11, of course. In fact, that was an election day in New York City. Um, But New York law permitted the election to be postponed even after some folks had begun to vote. Um, The governor uh, was allowed to, in effect, cancel the election, and Governor Pataki did that. 
But what happened, what would have happened if something like 9-11 had occurred right before or even, God forbid, on presidential election day? We only do this once every four years, pick a president. So here are options. We just don't do anything. We, we just whistle past the graveyard, so to speak, and just hope we get lucky. Um, and people may not know what they're voting for on election day. Suppose it were a death at the top of the ticket, not as in the West Wing episode um, with a bottom of the ticket, um, a vice presidential candidate's death. Um, so we just keep going. Um, but people don't know what they're voting for. Will a vote for a person who's known to be dead on election day even be counted? Okay. Now, of course... You know, when I listen to that, I want to hear what comes next. And one of the great things about podcasts is that you can go back and listen to this, uh, the entirety of these episodes. And we get into things like the Greeley precedent. uh, uh, The Horace Greeley precedent. Right. And, uh, you know, lots of different issues. And when we when we refer to the West Wing there episode there, of course, that's uh, that's a reference to the fact that uh, that you, Akil, were an advisor to the, uh, the television show, The West Wing. And. Uh, gave, gave them all sorts of uh, wild <laughs> but but possible uh, scenarios that resulted in some of the you know most uh, well-known well-loved episodes of the series and you encouraged me Andy because you're a total West Wing fan slash fanatic to um, binge watch um, during COVID um, uh, the entire um, series which I did um, and it does feel a little different when you're listening to them kind of um, in, in closer proximity. Um, and our audience and, and, and uh, I, you, I've gotten you hooked on Downton Abbey and, um, and you got me hooked on, on The Crown. Um, so, you know, I, we, I, we binge I watched The Crown and I'm, uh, my wife and I binged watch, um, watched um, uh, Downton Abbey. And our audience can binge listen to the podcast. One of the things we're trying to do at the end of the year is tell them about some of our um, uh, highlights. So if, if you haven't, um, audience members, if you're only coming late, to this podcast experience, check out our early ones um, if, if you're so inclined. Yeah, and so this was actually a series of, of three uh, podcasts about so-called bullets dodged because, you know, we were feeling, <laughs> originally when we planned this, we didn't anticipate the Capitol being stormed, although we, you know, we were worried about it. Um, and uh, so we, we were sort of going through the entire electoral process and all the different things that could happen. Um, and in connection with the uh, Electoral College, one of the things that we were concerned about was this question of faithless electors. And in the second episode, uh, we, <laughs> we discussed the, a case which was all about uh, faithless electors, um, the so-called uh, Chiafalo case. And this was really the first time that a pattern uh, w- was set that we've uh, <laughs> followed many times since then, which is that you have taken... Uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, recently or older ones and take an issue with uh, some of the justices, either the decision as a whole or the opinion or or the dissent or whatever. Um, and uh, so let's uh, let's take a listen to some of the comments that you had on the Chiaflo case. Something happens to one of our two candidates. And just imagine the worst case scenario, um, one of our two winning candidates, the, win- the seemingly winner of the uh, presidential and vice presidential contest on election day. Um, 
And here's a real bullet dodged. Um, various state laws purport to require the electors to vote as pledged. Otherwise, they're faithless electors, and state laws say that they can be punished. And the Supreme Court, in a decision just last year, actually said those state laws in general, a case called Chiafalo v. Washington, the so-called faithless elector case, the Supreme Court said, oh, those laws are valid. Now, in fact, I think, and that was 9-0, and I think the Supreme Court goofed big time, and I'll talk about that in just a second, why I think they goofed big time. But statute seems to say, oh, you have to vote. In statutes in, in many states, they have to vote as pledged, but now let's imagine as pledged that one of the candidates is dead. Um, let's imagine, worst case scenario, candidate is who's died after election day, but before the meeting of the Electoral College, 41 days later, was the top of the ticket. The statute says you got to vote as pledged, but there's this congressional precedent that we talked about in our first session. The Greeley, from Greeley case. The Greeley precedent from 1872-73, where Congress said we won't count votes by electors who are voting for someone who's dead the day the Electoral College meets. Oh my goodness, so the statute says you have to vote for the dead guy, and congressional precedent, not very well considered from 1872-73, say that's an invalid vote, we'll toss it out. And so if people voted uh, pursuant to the statute, as the Supreme Court seems to say, you know, th these statutes are valid, um, um, uh, and, and people can be punished if they, if they are faithless, and then Congress doesn't count that, then the only person with electoral votes um, who's alive that do count apparently is the guy who lost and and none of that makes sense and the Greeley precedent is a mistake but 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 people on the other side will point to the precedent and because people are partisan in Congress that's what we're seeing and they'll say well too bad so sad um, so we have the Greeley precedent that's wrong ill-considered no, and it, and it is ill-considered because Greeley had lost, so no one was paying much attention to it. And we've got this Supreme Court uh, precedent, from uh, that's from 1872-73, this Chaffalo precedent. It's also wrong and ill-considered for reasons I'll talk about. And put the two together, and oh my God, that's a problem. That was a bullet dodged, because thank God nothing happened to Joe Biden or Kamala Harris in that window between Election Day and Electoral College Meeting Day. Now, let's say that you are an elector in a state that has a, a law that says that you'll be punished if you uh, are a faithless elector. Now, God forbid, Joe Biden has died. You're going to there. Do you have the option of voting uh, for Kamala Harris and taking the punishment? Will your, will your vote count? Um, the Supreme Court didn't get into all that, but I think you could say, okay, I'll just take the hit. I'll vote um, the sensible thing, because this is what the people who picked me would want me to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll accept the punishment. So that is a possibility, but the Supreme Court acted as if these laws are actually good and valid laws, sensible laws. They dropped a footnote, footnote eight, that said, oh, maybe in a death situation it might be different, and, and we, uh, here's the language, a footnote eight of this opinion, for unanimous Supreme Court, it's not a great opinion. I love the author of the opinion, Elena Kagan, oh, I adore her, but this is not a great opinion, frankly, and footnote eight um, says, in recognition of this fact, some states have drafted their pledge laws, their faithless elected laws, to give elector, uh, electors uh, uh, voting uh, discretion when their candidate has died, CEG California Election Code, Indiana 
a code, and she quotes the sections. And we suspect that in such a case, states without a specific provision would also release electors from their pledge. Well, I'm glad she suspects that, but she can't guarantee that. Still, we note that because the situation is not before us, nothing in this opinion should be taken to permit the states to bind electors to a deceased candidate. Well, that's good. You know, she, she, she kind of punts on that. She doesn't tell us what to do. But the problem, frankly, isn't limited to someone who dies in that window. Suppose someone has a coma mm -hmm. in that window, um, and they're going to die, or they're never going to be able to be present again. Suppose lightning strikes. Suppose, actually, um, we have massive new evidence of a Manchurian candidate on video, testimony that the... That the um, uh, evidence that the candidate admits shows that he's in the pay, she's in the pay of some um, foreign enemy of the United States. The problem is created not just by death, as footnote 8 identifies and, and the Greeley precedent, but the very passage of time between election day, um, first Tuesday after the first November, and electoral college meeting day, 41 days later. Stuff happens, and in certain cases, a truly faithful elector would actually try to do what the voters would have wanted that elector to do given the changed circumstances, given the coma, given um, the, the, the treason that's just in the hypothetical now um, undeniable and, and visible to the world. Um, so that's the more fundamental problem. Now, you say, well, then why do we have these laws? And I say, well, they're unconstitutional, and it's easy to show that they're unconstitutional. And the person who litigated the case, I love him. He's my former teaching assistant. Um, I was at his wedding, my dear friend, Larry Lessig, and he brought the lawsuit so that the Supreme Court would invalidate these faithless elector laws, and he deserves to win, and he deserved to win 9-0, and he lost 9-0, in part because, with all due respect, I'm not sure he teed up the issues, perhaps as well and clearly as he could have, and the Supreme Court didn't really seem uh, particularly careful in its analysis. Okay. So uh, say what you really mean. Uh, so I really did mean that Elena Kagan, who wrote that opinion, is my friend. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories on, on that. One, uh, I visited the Harvard Law School in 2009 when she was the dean, and on February 24th of 2009, I had, it was a teaching day, and I had to uh, go up to, to, to teach, obviously. Um, but uh, my kids' school got canceled, um, or at least my son's school got canceled. And, um, and my wife really works for a living. She's a doctor. So, so I, I was supposed to take care of, uh, of Vic. This is on me. So I took him up to Harvard. Uh, with me, and and we marched over to Elena's office, and I said, Elena, uh, the reason I remember the date so well is I said, this is my son's 10th birthday, and and he would like a birthday present from you, and and she says, oh, what's that? And he says, I'd like your autograph, and she says, no one's ever asked me for my autograph before. I said, Elena, you know, I want you to remember that the first person who ever asked you for your autograph was my son on his 10th birthday, because we're betting on you. We're voting on you. You know, we, we're, we're team Elena, and, 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 and we wish only the best for you, which is true. And I've since become friendly with her, her, her brother, Irving, who is a wonderful high school teacher um, at Hunter College High School, where their mom actually um, was a, a beloved teacher. And, and Irving brings some of his kids to the New York Historical Society from time to time, some of his students, um, who, um, and I'm a trustee there. And I've actually, at Irving's invitation, talked to some of his 
his high school students, and he sent me some of his best students over the years. Um, and since I mentioned that I was at Larry Lessig's wedding, and I was, and I, I do love Larry, 10 years ago um, this month, or actually 10 years and, and two weeks ago, Elena actually performed the wedding um, for our dear friend, Philip Bobbitt, who actually also came on this podcast. And I think, I hope we're going to play a, a clip from that. So I, I really do like these folks. Personally, I'm not making that up. I consider them friends, but friends are honest with friends. And this was not a good opinion. And it's not unique to her. All the justices messed up big time, not, not in a small way, big time in my view in this case. And I don't think the actual, and I think Larry was absolutely right. Larry Lessig in what he was trying to get them to do, but I think he actually didn't quite tee up the issues in a kind of aggressive way that, that, that I might have um, telling them this is not just what you're thinking about. It's not just wrong, but, but nonsense. And, and I walked through why so, because I actually have been worried about all these issues forever. As I mentioned, I think on one of these um, episodes, my first television memory is John Kennedy's assassination. I'm five years old. I'm in, in kindergarten. And I so vividly remember Bobby Kennedy's assassination. I'm in California. That happened. So I've been thinking about these things forever. And there is the Greeley precedent. Um, so the basic uh, point is that um, the Supreme Court, they work really hard, but they, they're not experts on everything, especially on deep constitutional first principles that only rarely get litigated. That's why scholars like yours truly are an important part of the ecosystem and why podcasts like this are an important part of the system because we can actually, you know, explore the, the, the deep issues that the Supreme Court is either um, mangling or punting. Um, see Geofalo, see footnote eight. Yeah, I think our hope is that, uh, you know, that the, the, the clerks of some of the Supreme Court justices and other justices will, you know, listen to some of these podcasts and would tee up some arguments and, uh, you know, perhaps they run them by the justice. You know, this, what do you think about this? You know, et cetera. And, 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 um, and Andy, uh, just to, to tease uh, our audience just a little bit, we've already arranged for some amazing guests in the new year, including sitting federal judges who might one day themselves be justices. So not just clerks, but justices. Indeed. And we have heard, I'm not going to say from whom, but we have heard from some judges that they actually do uh, ask their clerks to to listen to some of the podcasts. So you, the audience, are, uh, are, are in on uh, current legal debates, I'm thinking. And, and when they and these judges um, come on our podcast as guests in, in, the, the, in the new year, I, I hope they'll confirm what we just, <laughs> what, what they actually have told us privately. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, so this was, a, as you can see, a series of, of very timely episodes at the time. Uh, let me just ask you one other question about Chiafalo. You know, we, we've been talking lately about questions about precedent and whether, you know, a precedent can be overruled simply because it's wrong. Um, it seems to me that with all the shenanigans that are going on now with state legislatures and elector, you know, possibly appointing electors and so forth, that we could wind up with uh, a scenario. I can't think of specifically what it might be, but where the Chaffalo case could could come up. Absolutely. Um, and um, uh, here, it, you know, hopefully it won't weigh that heavily. Hopefully it'll go the way of Gobitis. Um, where uh, it gets overruled pretty quickly because it's wrong. And one nice thing is if it does, it won't seem partisan because this was 9-0. Um, uh, so it, this was not politically charged. And the time to actually ideally correct the error is behind a veil of ignorance, um, not in um, a, a, a partisan Donnybrook, 
Um, so the reason this takes us back to what, what I said before, I'm kind of comfortable about my views on congressional oversight because I articulated them not knowing that it was going to help Trump or hurt Trump or help Biden or hurt Biden or, or whatever. Um, and so the time to fix Chaffalo ideally is before we know, oh, it's going to help uh, the, the, the blues or the reds. Well, perhaps that's one of the problems with the way the court works. I mean, it has to be deciding a case or a controversy. Right, so that it's hard for it to work behind the veil of ignorance, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, I do love dicta. I do love actually sometimes a court uh, actually saying uh, apropos of nothing. Um, oops. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, so that was our first group of episodes, um, uh, and of course, then what came out of January sixth was impeachment, um, and. Uh, also one of our first guests. Um, so Philip Bobbitt uh, appeared on the podcast. And so he was another first for us, uh, not only uh, first in the way of a guest, but also um, one of the things that we've done over over the years, we've actually broken some new ground, broken some news. People have, been, have said things on our podcast that uh, they hadn't said before. And uh, so Philip Bobbitt at the time was a, probably the most prominent academic advocate for the notion that you could not have an impeachment and a trial of an ex-officer, or in this case, an ex-president. Um, but um, on, our, uh, on our podcast, he modified that position. So I'm going to play you a clip from that. Um, and we were happy about the fact that he modified his position and then we punished him for it. But then we punished him for it with by making fun <laughs> and, of him. And, and he and he really is um, uh, our, our our dear friend. Um, I'm godparent to his his uh, uh, children, and um, I co-teach with him every year. Um, I, I quite adore him. Um, but it was a um, a good conversation in which actually his position was actually modified and and and, and clarified. His old position had some problems, I thought, and the new one also had some some problems. But but it was a great conversation, and our audience got to hear um, both sides of a of a really interesting legal question, which to repeat is about um, the possible impeachment and possible conviction and, and possible punishment. Um, a possible tri- impeachment uh, tr- uh, trial and um, possible conviction and possible punishment of ex-officers. Okay, so here's uh, Philip Abbott and Akilah Mar. Here's where we do disagree, but actually this conversation is helpful because I think the disagreement is much narrower than even I understood before and maybe than the public understands because you're saying now that the trial can and indeed should go forward. That, that trial is completely valid. What happens at the end of the trial, you know, uh, we can talk about, but nothing wrong with the Senate trying Donald Trump, even though he's no longer president. And here's a text that I'll toss out, and you um, had um, uh, um, um, mentioned it, that, the, that the, uh, this is in Article 1, Section 3, that um, the, the, the Senate... Um, uh, shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. And you and I agree, he was validly impeached while a president, and, and the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. So, so you and I are in agreement that this trial is proper, right? I think so, and I, you know, having watched the testimony 
uh, which is riveting, uh, I think it's been a very healthy thing. Great, because I honestly, Philip, you and I have talked a lot. I'm not sure I understood that that was your position. Um, uh, did you say that clearly? I'm not trying to play a gotcha game. Did you say that very clearly in any of the pieces that you've written thus far? Because I'm hoping maybe you didn't, and then we're going to break news with this podcast. Uh, uh, an important <laughs> no, clarification of your position. I haven't said that. To tell the truth, I really hadn't thought much about it. I, I felt that he could be validly impeached because he, the impeachment uh, resolution was uh, tabled and uh, adopted while he was still president. I, I thought that he could not be convicted, uh, but I didn't really give much thought to the trial. And having seen it today, uh, I think that it, it's quite important. And it also, I think, will have other salutary effects besides impeachment. It tees up uh, resolutions of censure. And frankly, uh, I think it, it provides a factual predicate or criminal prosecution, something wow. that the country, I think, would have been quite allergic to before this uh, detailed and, to my mind, overwhelming uh, case against the president presented by the House managers. So we're going to get to censure in a bit, um, and I know Andy wants to uh, uh, jump in as well, so I, I may push you a bit on censure, but honestly, Philip, because, you know, our audience doesn't know, but you and I have gone back and forth on this a lot um, on, on the phone and in email, and I honestly didn't understand that this was your position, that the trial was okay. That's great. We're gonna. This is going to be news on our podcast that, 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 that Philip Bobbitt now says that, that at least the trial is okay because, as you know, I've never been that gung-ho on disqualification. He can't be removed. He's already been removed. I've never right. been very gung-ho on disqualification. I'm reminded of this song that um, from uh, my misguided youth, I think it's by Howard Jones, because the idea of having a trial without the possibility of, of coming to a verdict and a judgment and conviction um, reminds me of this Howard Jones song. Um, uh, I think it's called No One Is to Blame. If, if memory serves, here's how it begins. You can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushion, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. I'm thinking you can have a trial, but there's no verdict and judgment and conviction. What kind of trial is that? <laughs> Agreed. So I think Howard Jones has the answer today. But thank you to Philip Bobbitt, and thank you, Akeem. You can feel the cushions, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. You can feel the punishment, but you can't commit the sin. And you want her, and she wants you. We want everyone, and you want her, and she wants you. Okay, well, now it's uh, almost a year later, and I guess no one is to blame. 
and 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 uh, Philip is such a good sport because you know here he is sweetly reasonable, modifying his position in response to to uh, arguments, and 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 again, um, and his his dear friend Akil sort of uh, mocks him for it because I I I, I want him to go um, even even further. That just That's all a, good fun, of course. It, it is, and just as I really I wasn't kidding that I really respect Elena and uh, Kagan and um, and 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 Larry Lessig um, I, I so love Philip and I actually I mentioned earlier Downton Abbey Philip is uh, apparently very good friends with Julian Fellows and has promised that he'll introduce me to Julian at a certain point so I want to stay on Philip's very good side for many many reasons including that one Ah, just like you met uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda after you know, being a big Hamilton fan. So. Thanks to Neil Katyal, who in the small world department is also one of our great guests. So I hope we'll hear from um, as we go uh, trip down memory, uh, take a trip down memory lane. Yes. And of course, uh, this was not the last of our wonderful guests. We, uh, uh, about two months later... Um, skipping ahead here a little bit uh, because a year's we every episode is packed full of material as you know so we can't go through everything but uh, another very memorable guest of course was the immortal uh, Bob Woodward you know it's funny because you know, we're talking about having a, a little bit of a, of a of a reveal or a gotcha um, you know Bob actually was on celebrating 50 years at the Washington Post and his wife Elsa interviewed him recently. And uh, they had quite a disclosure uh, on 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 their interview, which was posted on YouTube, so it's public. Um, and uh, this is not on our podcast, but uh, let me just uh, play this little reveal that uh, that Bob had recently. A lot of people know the sort of the parameters of of, of Watergate and the you know your your source there, um, Deep Throat. Uh, let's talk about him. Yes. for a while sure. um you kept that secret for a very long time um but shortly after we met you told me who it was and you hadn't told you told two other people why'd you do that yeah and and, and um we were dating and uh, you know we were in uh, certainly i was in love with you <laughs> and uh the uh we were out to dinner and you asked and uh, I said it was Mark Felt and uh, you were, yes, the third person to know that and uh, Bradley and Carl Bernstein and um, I told you because you asked and because First question, first rule of journalism, ask. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to, to be uh, mm -hmm. very direct, uh, and we, you and I have talked about this in mm -hmm. our, you know, our 30 plus years of marriage, uh, love is about trust. And I trusted you. Thank you. And uh, you, I told, it, it was the most natural thing. And the, you can't wall yourself off in a relationship we all have our private lives but you've got to kind of bulldoze down the walls that you normally have with people uh and um so it, it was i don't think you thought it was unusual that i told you did you i i um i thought it was
was, yeah, I thought it was a little unusual. I think I was asking, not fully expecting an answer, but I knew that once you told me that one, um, it meant something very important in our relationship and that you were trusting me with something that was of utmost significance to you. And um, I felt sort of honored and duty bound to also keep that secret until um, Mark Felt was later identified as deep throat by his lawyer. Wow. Wow. And um, but what Bob said on our podcast wasn't quite as big a wow, but but it was a wow. Um, and and we broke news of a certain sort, I think, um, uh, when we asked him a certain question and he, and he he answered it um, maybe because he 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 trusted us. He, he knows you and me. Um, we, we you and I have have been in, in his classroom um, and and I think he considers us friends and we surely consider him an Elsa friend. So on this podcast, which um, uh, happened b- before the 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 Elsa Walsh, Bob Woodward reveal. Uh, there was also an interesting reveal um, for for our audience. Do you have a diary, and and what will happen to it um, eventually um, if you do have a diary? Yeah, okay, that's a good uh, and fair question. I don't keep a diary, but what I do keep is what I did each day, and the important part of the diary is who I talk to, and. Uh, uh, with people's permission, I record those interviews, and so that will be available sometime uh, down the road. And but uh, wow, it wow, be far down the road when everyone's dead, including me. An amazing. I, I did not know that. So, so maybe the National Archives or, or something like that will will one day um, have that collection. Well, what I, for one of the books I did on Clinton, I had said I would give it to Yale. <laughs> wow. I, I think that, um, you know, that will be willed to my wife Elsa, uh, my daughters, uh, Hallie and uh, Diana, and then they can figure out what to do. Uh, but I will urge them not to burn it. <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> yeah so uh you know it's it's great that that'll be a resource for everyone I had, going back to uh to the interview with elsa i thought that it was very touching when she, when she just looks sort of lowers her voice and says thank you i mean you can see you know the the uh the love and trust there but i but it does raise a lot of interesting questions i mean uh about uh telling secrets uh of course, you know, we should mention that Elsa Walsh herself is a uh, award-winning journalist. So you're telling, you know, it's it's sort of like a lawyer talking to another lawyer yes. um, from the point of view of confidentiality. Yes, or a doctor talking to another doctor right back at you. <laughs> right. Um, although I wonder, because uh, he's not really talking to her in the in her capacity as a journalist. So, so for example, if, if I know something about a patient and I'm out to dinner with another doctor. I can't really tell that doctor about that patient, you know, unless he's also that, the, you know, that, that patient's doctor. Yes, although they do have actually um, a very intense working relationship. Elsa, Bob says, is his best editor, and, and they, they do uh, work together. Um, uh, and um, and um, 
And I adore El- Elsa, um, and, and you've met her, and um, and maybe in the new year we can sweet talk her into coming uh, onto the podcast um, also. Good idea. Yeah, um, so uh, Akil and I were privileged to uh, audit uh, the seminar that uh, Bob Woodward has taught over the years um, on journalism at Yale to select a few students, and we got to sit in and chime in from time to time on medical and legal matters. And the day, and the the day that my um, uh, new book was published, um, May fourth, uh, Andy and I, you you did this Blues Brothers road trip um, all the way uh, down to, to to Georgia, and we were on our way back um, to, to to Princeton um, for the uh, night, and uh, where I was going to sp- uh, stay with them, uh, you and, and your beloved spouse, and and then back to New Haven. But on our way up from from Georgia. To, and you were driving. We stopped off at um, Montpelier uh, to do a Zoom um, book event um, at, at Madison's Montpelier uh, in connection with the National Archives, uh, the aforementioned National Archives. But then on the way back, um, we went over to Bob and Elsa's house and because I wanted to give them on publication day, uh, you know, hand inscribed copy of um, my, my new book, because they're people who who actually do um, mean a lot to me. Uh, I, I wrote a, a, a book about um, what I call constitutional journalism, um, writing things about the Constitution for places like The Washington Post and The New York Times op-eds and the like. And, and that book is dedicated to Bob Woodward. And I tell the story about why in the acknowledgments um, of that book, because when I was in high school, I um, was really inspired um, by Bob Woodward and, and Carl Bernstein. They, they brought down a president who was corrupt. And in high school, I was a, an, an investigative journalist myself. I was the editorial editor and editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, and I, I ran these exposés. I, I ran one on how the school was spending a lot more money on boys' sports than girls' sports. Um, and, and that's because I was inspired by Bob Woodward. And, and when I look back on my life, I actually think, Andy, that's why I got into Yale College, because, you know, I had good grades and good scores and, and, and all the rest. But, but often Yale is looking for something, you know, special above and beyond that. And they looked at this and say, ah, oh, this guy's a troublemaker. And nobody's a troublemaker in a certain kind of way that might be interesting. And yes, I was a troublemaker in a certain kind of way, maybe still am, but it was a way inspired by Bob Woodward. So um, long before I even met him, you know, he was my hero and not just my hero, but someone who would actually maybe completely change the arc of my life because I arrive at Yale College on my 18th birthday, sight unseen, um, and never leave. Um, And I would never have been there, but for the fact that um, Bob Woodward, um, who was himself a Yaley, 15 years my senior, um, same residential college, Ezra Stiles, because Bob Woodward um, actually inspired me. Um, so it, it, it meant a lot. This, as you know, Andy, I poured a lot into the new book, um, The Words That Made Us. And I love the podcast, but, oh, audience members, you need to know that I, I would love it also if, in addition to listening to the podcast, you experience the book on audio um, uh, books or um, at, at a library, or, you know, if, if you want to uh, purchase it, I, I won't complain. Um, but, but it meant, a, this is my most ambitious book, Andy, and you were, you helped me at, at, at every stage, but it, it somehow was very fitting and special that you and I on pub date, May 4th, 
um, uh, 2021 on our way um, back uh, from a couple of, of book events, uh, stopped off in, in DC and, and, and had a little a bite of dessert with uh, Bob and Elsa. And, and I gave them a hand, um, you know, a signed uh, copy that this actually meant a lot to me. And Andy, you were there and it meant a lot that you were there. Thank you. Well, thank you. And of course, um, You've 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 told that story to me before about Bob. I think you may have to mention some of it to, to our audience also. About I did. I, I, I did in the in the Woodward interview. Right. But uh, in that interview, you know, we talked a lot about the presidency, and of course, the which has obviously been a huge part of of Bob's career, and uh, it's a big part of this podcast because it's a big part of the Constitution as you see it, and it's a big part of the words that made us. Uh, one of the main themes in the words that made us is. Um, the importance of the presidency and the, therefore the importance of the first president, George Washington, uh, and subsequent presidents. And so there's a, there's a certain, uh, you might say, well, what does a journalist and a constitutional lawyer have in common? But um, in some ways, uh, there's a lot in common. So here's, here's some things. Oh, 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 that- and, and, and let me just mention one other thing, not just the presidency. Uh, and he did, he's written so many books about presence and he brought down not just one, but two with, with Trump um, with um, fear and, and rage. But of course he also wrote this amazing expose with, with Scott Armstrong of the court, the, the brethren, which as I explained, the acknowledgements of my book um, uh, inspired me to go to law school. So, so I get into Yale college cause I'm an investigative journalist um, because of all the president's men. And then I decide to go to law school. Once, I, once I'm at Bob Woodward's own college, Yale, um, I decide to go to law school because I read The Brethren. Um, and, and that really, really got me pumped about um, the Supreme Court in, 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 in particular. And we mentioned all of that, by the way, in our episode just last week when we talked with Linda Greenhouse, who has uh, written a, um, important books about um, the, the, the court and the justices in a Woodward-like tradition, although she, I said, Hers was different in a way because she didn't cultivate the same kind of court sources, um, justices and clerks that Bob Woodward famously did, Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong for the Brethren. Yeah, and we'll play her saying that later. But uh, here's, here's Bob Woodward telling us some things about the presidency. I think the starting point of what I've extracted from writing about the nine presidents is the incredible concentration power in the presidency. It's, as, as you both know, rooted in the Constitution, uh, Article 2, the, the President of the United States is the executive branch. And uh, in the modern era, with so much news coverage, the, the speed and uh, impatience of getting to things, a president, this is so well demonstrated by Trump, can dominate not just the political world, but the, uh, the country in a way. Uh, I've done a lot of work on various wars, going back to the first Gulf War uh, in 1991, uh, George W. Bush's wars, how Obama handled uh, his wars, and uh, you realize that presidents have really practically the sole power to start a war. I think wars are the most defining events for any country, certainly have been ours. And so people are going to think about 
gee, who should be president? It should be the, you're, you're hiring a commander in chief uh, who can literally deploy the force as he or she sees fit. And uh, yes, the Congress could stop money, but for practical purposes, again, once a president is committed U.S. troops in the field, uh, it would be difficult to impossible for Congress to withdraw the funds to pay, equip, and provide ammunition and all of the things that troops in the field need. So uh, that's, that's the starting point to understand the, the modern presidency and should be, I, I think, in the, uh, you know, we define ourselves as a nation by who we go to war with. So um, I can't believe that uh, um, this is a kind of constitutional law podcast for con law nerds, and so I just, I just love it that you're actually quoting Article 2 of the Constitution in your answer, and you've outed yourself as a unitary executive of, of a certain sort. And, and welcome to the club, because Andy and, and I are, are in that camp as well. And if you look at the various presidents that you have interviewed and gotten to know and written about, which presidents would you say impressed you the most with their ability to rise to the occasion when they were presented with unexpected situations? Uh, important question. Uh, I, am, in the end, uh, turned out to be uh, very appreciative of Gerald Ford, who succeeded Nixon, and of course when he pardoned Nixon, there was a lot of scorn heaped on Ford, including by me and my partner Carl Bernstein, and then, again, this luxury of time to go dig into things. Twenty years later, I did this series of interviews with Ford, revisiting the question, and uh, I remember, I think it was about, it was seven interviews, and uh, the last one was at his home in Rancho Mirage, California. We're sitting there in his little office, and we turned to the pardon, and uh, and he he said, and uh, in the most direct way, said that people don't understand why I pardon Richard Nixon. It was not for Nixon, it was not for his family, but it was for the country. And then he, in this wonderful kind of monologue, he said, "Let me tell you the world I was living in." as soon as I became president and Nixon resigned. He said, everything, all the questions to me, or virtually all of them, were about Nixon. It, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to be indicted? Is he going to be tried? What's he doing out there in San Clemente? And Ford said uh, quite, I mean, it, it, it was gripping to listen to this, he said, so I was crippled almost as president by the Nixon shadow. I had to say and think like a president, and a president has to say what's in the national interest, not what's in my specific political interest. And 
that I looked out and we had to get Nixon off the front page. We had to move on. And so I, I was 30 days into the Ford presidency. He surprised <clears throat> the world really by going on television and saying, I'm giving Nixon a full pardon for Watergate. And he said, I knew I was going to pay a political price. But I, my job was assessing the national interest in acting on that national interest as, and he said, quite as only I could see it. My lawyers and my staff and you know, people resigned. They were quite upset about him. But I had a particular vantage point. And I then... Uh, wrote about this, and Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of John F. Kennedy, uh, called me up and said they're going to give the Profiles and Courage Award to Gerald Ford for pardoning Nixon. I did not go to the ceremony at the Kennedy Library, but watched it. And it was fascinating to see Ford there in a way vindicated in his explanation and uh, that since he had done what was in the national interest, not his political interest. So as you, you look at that, you have to admire it and that rather courageous, it was a profile of courage in my view. Of course, uh he didn't always feel that way about it. I'd love it if you could share with our audience um, what your and Carl Bernstein's reactions were at that time, because you've shared, just told us you changed your mind about this as you've come back and done more reporting and looked at it. So what did you think about that in the moment, you and Carl Bernstein? And, and I think you also did some um, intermediate reporting about um, Al Haig and other folks approaching Gerald Ford. So you told us now what your new view is, but what were your earlier views ab about yeah, this issue? Sunday morning that Ford... Uh, announced the pardon of Nixon. He went on television early, and I was asleep, and uh, Carl Bernstein called me up and said, have you heard? And I said, you know, I haven't heard a thing. I've been asleep. And then he, in Carl's particularly direct and succinct way, said the uh, son of a bitch pardoned the son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> or the son of a bitch had pardoned the son of a bitch uh, Nixon, and uh, we thought that there was a deal, and our reporting later showed that Haig, who was Nixon's chief of staff, came and offered a deal, and this is what years later I went through Ford with, and he said, yes, Haig offered a deal, but I rejected the deal. <laughs> okay. Two sides of, uh, of the coin there. And Bob Woodward changed his mind um, when presented with new evidence, and Philip. Uh, and that that took years. But when he, um, and Philip Bobbitt changed his mind on the podcast uh, as we went back and forth about how to think about uh, the impeachment process, and that's really uh, what 
uh, this podcast is is all about is respecting people who are um, um, evidence driven. We ask hard questions of our audience. They they push back. You always ask hard questions of me, and and sometimes new positions um, uh, emerge um, and and evolve. And it's one of the many things that I so respect about Bob Woodward is he stays open. It's connected to a question you asked me in an episode um, several weeks ago about whether justices ever change their mind after oral argument, or even when they're writing the opinion, or even after they've written an opinion and it's been published, but they think maybe it was a mistake. Um, oops. Um, I'm hoping that some justices will feel that way about the Chiafilo case, for example, just as several justices who originally voted in the Gobitis case in 1941 to uphold the power of a state to punish a public school student for refusing to salute the flag, some of those justices changed their mind um, when they began to uh, appreciate certain um, arguments that they, that they hadn't quite seen as clearly before. That's what we need more of in America is people who are actually open to new evidence and to reasoned counter arguments. Actually, there's been uh... A, uh, a thread through political philosophy over the centuries that says that societies that are able to reconsider uh, po- their positions are actually healthier societies. This goes back to Thucydides, talks about the breakdown of uh, civil order in Kosaira, and uh, he says there that that the that flexibility is in, becomes weakness. Um, and I'll uh, I'll put a quote up from Thucydides on the website about that. Um, so we've got a few more uh, episodes to go through, but of course, as predicted, we're uh, we're running on and on, which is good. Um, and the, this should be a two-parter because it's been uh, a big year. But you know, speaking of keeping uh, keeping us honest, you know, our audience is keeping us honest through uh, their feedback and their questions, and we've promised to take a few questions. So. Uh, before we, we go today, let's take a few questions here, and then we'll take some more of these questions in our next episode when we go through the rest of the clips. So uh, thank you, audience, for submitting some clips. We have, you know, uh, questions, rather. We have more questions than we can than we can go through, but uh, here's a question from uh, listener Josiah Rutledge. Um, he asked us, Professor Marr has uh, repeatedly referenced his favorite uh, books. Uh, I'd love to listen to an episode about these books, perhaps even an episode along the lines of essential reading for con law nerds, whether it be books, cases, historical documents, law review articles, etc. And we, we may do such a, an episode, uh, Josiah, but uh, for today, um, I'm going to ask uh, Akil what some of his, uh, his favorite or most recommended books uh, are, other than, of course, The Words That Made Us is uh, number one on the list right now. Um, but... Uh, what are, what are some books that are, have been important for you that you think most of our listeners would enjoy? Uh, so you're right, Andy. I am somewhat self-absorbed, so um, I do like some of my own books, truthfully, um, and I'm proud of them, the words that made us most recently. And I would say before that, um, the, 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 um, the uh, other one that um, I maybe want um, our audience members to to, to uh, consider is a 2005 book called America's Constitution, a biography, which walks the reader through the written constitution from start to finish. Okay. And I mentioned actually early in this episode, um, some stuff from the sequel to that America's unwritten constitution. Now, if you look at the end notes and the footnotes to those books, 
you'll see lots of references to many of my other favorite books because no one invents himself. We stand on, on others' shoulders. And when you look at those footnotes and endnotes, you probably won't be surprised that you'll see actually um, references to, to some of the folks actually who have appeared on this podcast or will be appearing on this podcast. So I'm a huge fan of Gordon Woods. And we had him on this podcast in connection with a recent book of his that I think is a beautiful distillation and summary of his entire life's work, a book called Power and Liberty. And that phrase, power and liberty, is actually borrowed in part from a chapter of a famous book that Gordon Woods' teacher and mentor authored, uh, Bernard Balin's Ideological Origins, The American Revolution, which is also one of my favorite books. I, I was assigned at Andy my first semester at Yale College. Um, and there's a section, um, a chapter actually called Power and Liberty. And of course, Wood knows that because this is his mentor. And the title of his new book is an homage in part to um, his own mentor, Bernard Balin. As much as I like Power and Liberty, I, I, it's probably, you know, not my single favorite Gordon Wood book. That would be, you know, a, a stiff competition because he's written about 10 or so in all. And I think I've read every single one and I'm very admiring of um, his body of work. He wins a Bancroft prize, um, which is the highest professional award that historians give to fellow historians for what was his doctoral dissertation um, at Harvard under Balin, the creation of the American Republic. It's amazing. I think it's around 1969 or so an amazing piece of intellectual history and that's one of my favorite books. But he later writes a book that, that combines that kind of intellectual history with more storytelling, um, a more narrative. It's, um, and, and that might be my favorite Gordon Wood book, um, Empire of Liberty, because it, it goes beyond pure uh, intellectual history. Um, in between, he wrote a book called Radicalism in the American Revolution, this amazing intellectual history, but also um, cultural and social history of a certain sort. But again, not as much storytelling and narrative. Empire of Liberty is in a series in uh, an uh, Oxford um, University um, series, a series of books about the entirety of American history, each author in the volume picking a certain uh, time slice. And then when you put all the volumes together, they, they basically tell the story of, of uh, uh, all of American history. And Empire of Liberty tells a story basically um, of from 1787 the con or 1789, I can't remember which, but the, the Constitution to 1815. What I love about Empire of Liberty is it's storytelling, it's narrative, but it's also intellectual and cultural and social. It, it blends them all t together. So Gordon Wood books, if you're interested in the founding period. Um, so before you, you leave from Gordon Wood, let me give you my take on, on Gordon Wood for the audience. Okay. I would talk to the uh, audience about sort of short, medium, and long Gordon Wood books. So if you want to read a short Gordon Wood book, I would say... The American Revolution, which is just about, you know, 150-page book. You know, it's magnificent. Every word counts in that yep. book. Um, or you might be interested in a book, if you've read The Words That Made Us, you might enjoy Revolutionary Characters, which gives you a, a short profile on each of the founders as he saw them. Um, it's kind of an interesting play against uh, Akil's book, which also has chapters on the various. So those are short books. Yes, um, and for a medium book, I think the radicalism of the American Revolution, which which uh, Akil mentioned, is 
is one of the more readable books of, you know, political philosophy, if you will, um, combined with history, that I that I would that I've that I've read. So yes, it's it's less storytelling. It's true, but it's so well written, um, and so that's a that's a real winner. And I second the the notion on Empire of Liberty. The other thing I would say about Empire of Liberty for a long book is that you know we've been talking in this podcast about people that have been willing to admit they were wrong or correct themselves or something like that. I think Gordon Wood brings in history of slavery and things like that much more in his later books mm-hmm. than he does, for example, in Creation of the American Republic. Um, and Empire of Liberty is a book that, that tells of that. So there, it's not quite a matter of admitting you're wrong, but sort of acknowledging a blind spot and, uh, and correcting it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And since you mentioned Gordon's very short um, book on the American Revolution, that's in the tradition of another hero of mine, my teacher, actually, at Yale College, Ed Morgan, in the intellectual tradition, uh, intellectual history tradition, sort of our genealogy, Ed Morgan and Bernard Balin um, both studied uh, under a, a very great historian named Perry Miller. And Ed Morgan came to Yale and taught the likes of me, and Bernard Balin was at Harvard, where Perry Miller had been, and uh, taught the likes of, of, of Gordon Wood. My first semester of Yale College, I get assigned to, to, to read an American history textbook by Ed Morgan and some other books by Ed Morgan, including one called American Slavery, American Freedom, epic book. But he also wrote a, a, a short little book called um, Birth of the Republic. And I think it's underrated. Morgan uh, just wrote in such a, a beautiful and, and, and pithy way, um, very um, much in the tradition maybe of, of someone like um, Hemingway. I still remember, actually, um, one a little passage from that book. And I didn't know who the fellow was who was really describing and this fellow named Thomas Hutchinson later becomes actually one of my three main characters in the opening uh, three chapter the, the opening chapters of my new book, The Words That Made Us. Thomas Hutchinson is America's greatest, um, most important uh, loyalist, American-born loyalist, uh, born in America but stays loyal to. George III. Um, and he's a really interesting character. And most of you have never heard of him. And I really didn't know much about him. But here's what Ed Morgan said. And, and it's a short little book called Birth of Republic. People did not like Thomas Hutchinson. They did not like his long nose or his long face or the long list of offices he held. <laughs> and, and, you know, they did not like his constant courting of royal favor, his unswerving support of England's authority. He was actually an honorable man, and he goes on. So, like two sentences, three sentences, and you laugh, but he's captured the essence of Hutchinson, which is he was a decent person, but, but people didn't like him. Mm-hmm. Bernard Balin, who I m- m- mentioned before, um, uh, Wood's own uh, mentor, actually wrote this um, entire book called The Ordeal of Tom Hutchinson. And I benefited greatly from reading it. But truth be told, it's not as uh, compulsively readable as something like Empire of Liberty. Um, it's, it's a narrative book. It's a biography of a certain person. Um, but um, it was a little bit too much in, in the weeds. You kind of had to know already the Hutchinson story to fully appreciate uh, the, the version that Balin narrates, whereas I didn't feel that um, with, say, Empire of Liberty. So those are some some book recommendations. I'm going to throw one more in here. Uh, uh, I not, know what you're going to say. 
Well, no, no, yeah. Oh. No. So it's okay. not, this is not on the founding, but it's, uh, it's on. Yeah, the no, no. I, I, I thought you were oh. going to talk about Robert Cairo. No, not going to talk oh, about okay. Robert Cairo. Okay, he's <laughs> audience members. Andy's always talking about Robert yes, Cairo. My, my favorite author, role model um, of sorts. Um, and we did not mention this to Philip Bobbitt, and here's why, just since we're connecting dots here at the end of the year, <laughs> because, because Philip's. Uh, uncle, his mother's uh, brother was Lyndon Johnson, and and this gives him a certain view of of impeachment and all sorts of other things. Perhaps, perhaps he he grows up in the White House um, in 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 part because Johnson never had a son, and 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 uh, so Bob uh, Philip was kind of the closest thing that Lyndon Johnson um, uh, had to his son. And of course, Cairo writes this epic uh, series about um, uh, Lyndon Johnson as well as the, the Power Broker, which Andy loves about Robert Moses. Um, and Johnson doesn't always come um, across in. You know, as the absolute perfect hero in in every one of these volumes, and and I'm not sure that Andy mentioned uh, his his deep deep admiration for Caro when 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 Philip came on the program. Yeah. Although he's he's been re- Caro's been rehabilitated a little bit in the Johnson oh, family. LBJ has been rehabilitated. Yeah. Right, yeah. well, the two have gone together. <laughs> but uh, the book I was going to recommend is. Uh, is is one of my favorite books that was recommended to me by Akil, and that's uh, the impending crisis um, by by uh, David Potter. So that's a, a book about the period, um, I would say eighteen forty to eighteen sixty, mm-hmm. uh, the, the run up to to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing book, a mm-hmm. beautiful combination of of wonderful writing, deep research, perceptive analysis, you name it. And I'm really looking forward to rereading that book um, when I do the sequel um, to The Words That Made Us. The Words That Made Us, the subtitle is America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. I hope to, if I live long enough, write two companion volumes, The Words That Made Us Equal, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920, and The Words That Made Us Modern, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1920 to 2000. This is my own little mini version of the Oxford History of America, but with the difference that I'm only focusing on the constitutional saga of America um, and not everything else that's happening. But when I do volume two, which I'm going to be diving into, I hope, soon enough, the words that made us equal, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is rereading the appending um, crisis, um, reading other books about that period, including um, books by um, another hero of mine, the great Eric Foner, including his book on uh, Reconstruction. Um, so w- one of the great thrills that, that a book author has, or a certain kind of author, is um, as he or she is writing his own book, um, immersing himself, herself, in his other favorite books, because as I said, you know, at least a certain kind of writing, the kind of writing that I do, um, is writing that's standing on the shoulders of, of, of others. And it's, it's great fun to, um, if when you're writing the kinds of books that I do, to uh, engage a primary source that maybe no one has looked at for 100 or 200 years, some letter or some um, interesting speech or some obscure but nevertheless important statute that has some impl- constitutional implications. So, so it is very exciting to, or to rediscover important case that, um, that others haven't written about in the Supreme Court. Uh, for example, I, I think the cases about carriage taxes um, in the founding era are much more important than, than um, I was taught. So, so it's great when you're engaging primary source material. In court opinions, grand jury presentments, 
statutes, speeches, private correspondence, but it's also great to immerse yourself in um, the great secondary literature, the other scholars who have come before you, and to see if their narrative and insights kind of uh, align with yours. So, so for example, I know now a lot more about Thomas Hutchinson because I actually read uh, a lot of Hutchinson's own writings, but then I can compare that, that pr- my sense of the primary source materials with what Bernard Balin thought about Hutchinson in a book, The Ordeal of Thomas Hutchinson, or with what Ed Morgan said just in a paragraph. <laughs> I mean, just such a model of concision. People did not like Thomas Hutchinson. They did not like, you know, his long face or his long nose or the long list of offices he held. And I still remember the moment when I was reading that as a student and I burst out laughing, you know, mm-hmm. a serious scholarly book that actually tickled me. Now, I think, frankly, that Josiah's question might have been designed to elicit recommendations of favorite works of constitutional law. I think we mainly discussed works of history just now, which, uh, although they're relevant, they might not have been squarely uh, answering the question. So in part two of our uh, year-end podcast here, we'll take some time to list some of Akil's favorite constitutional law readings, whether they're books, journal pieces, or in other forms. Um, Okay, we have a question uh, from Joe. Uh, He's only identified as Joe. Uh, Good day. Uh, Uh Neil Katyal mentioned that he was... Was it on White House stationery? (laughs) 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 Did it come from uh, West Virginia? I think he was sitting on an Amtrak when he uh, he wrote. Uh, Neil Katyal mentioned that he listened to John Roberts' oral arguments before the United States Supreme Court as an advocate. Uh, I would like to listen to them as well. Where are they available? Andy, actually, you know the answer to this. I'm going to let you, I mean, I know the question was asked to to me, but you are the empresario of this podcast, so um, um, uh, uh, how would you answer it? Okay, well, so specifically with John Roberts' oral arguments, uh, you can look up at oyez.org, O-Y-E-Z.org, and um, on John Roberts' page, he has his own page there, um, there's a list of cases that he's argued before the Supreme Court. And each of those, those cases uh, is hyperlinked. If you click on the hyperlink, um, it will take you to another OEA page of that case. So for example, uh, we'll just pick a case here. So John Roberts argued the case of uh, Barnhart uh, versus uh, Peabody Coal Company in uh, 2000. Uh, and two. So if you click on that link, um, you'll see on the left side of the page media, and then there's the oral argument uh, with a little um, icon next to it indicating that there is a, a file. You click on it and you can then play that. You can see a transcript and you can also play the page so that you can actually hear it. Um, so that's, uh, that's how you can find John Roberts' oral arguments. Now, if you want other oral arguments, uh, you didn't specifically ask about that. Um, but um, all of the arguments since 1955 have been taped. Um, not all of them are available on OYO, though I think most of them are at this point. But if you need something that isn't, you would have to go to the National Archives or the Library of Congress where they keep them on tape, and then you can listen to them there. But most of them are available at OYO.org. And it's interesting to uh, the value of listening to an oral argument as opposed to reading the transcript. I think Akil has an anecdote on that. 
Yes, the great case of New York Times versus Sullivan was argued by this um, a preeminent Columbia scholar. His name was Herbert Wexler. And Herbert Wexler, um, Professor Herbert Wexler, was, for example, the mentor of um, I, I, uh, one of the first uh, woman stu- women students at Columbia. She was a transfer student from uh, Harvard Law School. Her, her name was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I was once at an and he helped her, for example, he helped launch her career. Um, I was at an event um, with a tribute to Wexler and uh, Ginsburg came um, to Columbia where her daughter is actually on the faculty, James Ginsburg. And, and she said actually that uh, when she closed her eyes and imagined what God looked like, he looked like Herbert Wexler. <laughs> um, um, and Wexler, as I said, was this uh, a preeminent uh, legal scholar and government servant. Um, he I was a Solicitor General of the United States, and in that respect, he was a, um, a precursor of Neil Katyal, who was a scholar, but also was acting Solicitor General of the United States um, in the Small World Department. The current Herbert Wexler Professorship of Jurisprudence uh, at the Columbia Law School is held by, you guessed it, Philip Bobbitt. Wexler, um, one of his most famous oral arguments was defending the New York Times in the case of New York Times versus Sullivan. And and I had known that, and I had heard that this was a celebrated oral argument, but I, I had never fully experienced it. So I, I looked at the transcript. Um, I, I, th- I think I went on this website and looked at the transcript, but then I actually listened to it. Wexler had a, a very distinct New York accent. He, 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 he grew up, I think, in one of the boroughs, probably Brooklyn, um, but um, I, I haven't triple-checked that. But at one point... He actually says something, I think, and I can't remember the specific. He makes a reference to a particular case or to a legal proposition, but he he does so with an accent. And in the transcript, it's mistranscribed. So I didn't quite, it was only when I actually listened to the oral argument that, ah, this is what actually Wexler is in fact saying. And, oh, this is a really interesting angle of the whole thing. Now, I wish I could remember (laughs) the actual specifics of the thing, but I'm going to have to go back myself at some point and and listen to that oral argument again. Okay. Well, anyway, Joe, thank you for that question. And it is, uh, you know, as you can see, it's it's a good idea to listen to the oral argument. Okay. Well, we've got some more great questions we're going to take in our next episode, but this one's running a bit long. But... uh, I think so. We've got some exciting things coming up in our podcast in the near future. So, so since this is a recap of uh, of the past year, I think it makes sense to look forward to next year a little bit. And one of the things that we're doing is next week we're taking America's Constitution on the road and going down to the Sunshine State of Florida, and we're going. Uh, Keel's going to be giving some talks to various organizations down there, including uh, Yale Alumni Organization. Uh, and the Society of the Four Arts in uh, Palm Beach. And uh, we're going to do a live episode of our podcast. We'll take, we'll discuss uh, a current topic of interest, and we will take questions from the audience, and maybe we'll do some more of of your questions on the website. And uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And then we'll have another uh, recap episode with clips and so forth. Uh, good, yeah, because we, we have so many more great clips, and that would be a good way to launch the new year as well as to to end this one is just to um, to do at least uh, to do one more episode um, uh, sharing with our audience some of the the highlights of our our first years so that you can uh, appropriately binge listen if you're so inclined. 
Yeah, I know a lot of people have joined the podcast in recent weeks because it's, we've been featured on a lot of blogs and there's been a lot of discussion about some of the things that we've said. So I assume that a lot of our list, new listeners have didn't start with episode one, haven't heard all the ones. This will help you pick out some of the, some of the highlights and things that interest you. Um, and then we're going to have some, we believe, some uh, current judges from federal bench that will appear on our, our podcast, our identities to be revealed later when we confirm their appearance. So that's going to be very exciting. Um, and uh, more guests from, from so, some spheres. of some of whom, uh, quite honestly, are on various short lists, I, I believe, for the Supreme Court. Yes. So, uh, you know, a lot of exciting things. I think we, we probably will do uh, some discussion about the uh, the New York Times uh, case, which is coming around. Some interesting issues there. Uh, maybe we'll talk about gerrymandering as uh, has been in the news. And we haven't really talked too much about that on the podcast yet. So um, lots of lots of good stuff in the new year. And uh, continue to throw your questions on the website. Give us your feedback. Listen to the old episodes. And uh, don't forget to check out the EverScholar website at everscholar.org. And the words that made us is the book. So, Akil, thank you so much for this. What's been a fantastic ride. And then I, I'm looking forward to continuing it in the new year. Thank you, Andy.